This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let me start with the sort of why for this kind of stuff. So common idea in our, in our society, America, early 21st century also was already common, the late 20th century USA. It was common to think two things, that the existence of God is a matter of faith and that matters of faith can't be reasoned about, from which of course it would follow that the existence of God can't be reasoned about. Now, I'm going to disprove the claim that the existence of God can't be reasoned about by reasoning about it. <laughs> that's really easy. Like that should be the uncontroversial conclusion. You'll see me reasoning. You may think it's bad reasoning, but it's reasoning. So at least the conclusion that it can't be reasoned about is false. Uh, so at least one or at least premise one or premise two is false, right? I, I mean, empirically false because it can be reasoned about because it is reasoned about. Um, the New Testament denies both of the two claims here. So Paul says in Romans, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And yet faith is about things unseen, he tells us. So if it's clearly perceived, it doesn't seem like Paul at least thinks it's a matter of faith. Of course, you know, uh, the, the maybe non-Christians may wonder whether Paul's right about this. But when I say it's common in our society, you think one and two, it's, that includes Christians who think these things. And regarding two, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, says uh, the first letter of Peter. So it does seem like matters of faith, at least he thought, can be reasoned about. And sort of... Moving away from the Bible and towards philosophical thought, if God made everything, then we would expect creation to contain signs of him of some sort. I mean, it's not guaranteed. God might like make some, go to some special effort to keep uh, it secret that he is the one who made things. But, we would, but that would be a surprising thing. The most plausible thing to expect is that if God created the universe, we would find some kind of signs of him in the universe. There's a converse to this, right? If we don't find such signs, then that's at least some evidence that God doesn't exist. So could be reasoned about, the existence of God can be reasoned about in both directions, in favor and against. The particular way of reasoning that, I'm, that I've thought a lot about is something called the cosmological argument. And it comes in a variety of things. So I've kind of done a, a, what I want to give you guys is a kind of hybrid of two different versions of it. There's like sort of two famous versions of it, one called the Kalam argument and one um, that comes from Aquinas later, maybe Leibniz is to some degree in this uh, camp. Um, and I'm going to give you a kind of mishmash of the two, but I'll, it'll be clear which one's which. So. Here's what I'm do, going to do. Here's the, the basic argument. It'll be for quick reference on the sidebar as I go through the talk. So something causes something. Premise one, premise two. There's no circularity of causes. Causes don't go around in circles. Three, 
Now I say, following actually the Islamic Kalam school, that there are no infinite backwards chains of causes. We can't, we'll, we'll, we'll get to some more detail and you'll get a, a better picture of what I mean by this. But, and this is the second part of this, even if there is an infinite backwards chain of causes, there must be a first cause beyond it. And I'll argue for that. So either way, there is the first cause. And then the first cause is God. The last part I'm going to not say that much about. I'll say a little bit about it. But here's how this works. So let's, I'll go through the bits of the argument one by one. Something causes something. Well, this is really pretty uncontroversial, right? I mean, your parents cause you to exist. Um, much of modern science is about finding the causes of things, um, like evolutionary process or a cause of our existence, that kind of stuff. And modern science, apart from the scientific theories, the very practice of science is, uh, involves doing experiments. In experiments, we carefully cause different effects while controlling for how we do so. So, right, science, so science uh, depends on causation um, plus common sense says there is causation. So that part I don't think is super controversial, but you know, philosophers are weird. You know, there are philosophers who say they not exist. There are philosophers who, who have said that there is no such thing as change. And there are philosophers who say, who say there's no such thing as causation but they are very much a minority, even among the weird folk that we philosophers are. Second thing, um, nothing can cause itself. There are no circles of cause. Why can't nothing cause itself? Well, first let's think about the sort of more direct circle. Could I be my own cause? No, why? Because then I would have to somehow exist before myself. Now, maybe not necessarily in time, but in some sense, I would have to be like prior to myself. I'd be explaining myself. I'd be like, the explanation of my existence would already be presupposing the thing I'm explaining, namely my own existence, if I was my own cause. So that doesn't make any sense. I can't be my own cause. And for exactly the same reason, you can't have a larger circle. You can't have like A cause B, B cause C, and then C come back to A, because then, um, C would be both after A, because it's explained by A causing B and B causing C, and before A. And that, that would be absurd. Likewise with A and B. So we can't, I think, have causation go around in circles. Notwithstanding, you know, occasionally science fiction has time travel stories where causation does go in a circle. But I think the circular stuff just doesn't make sense. Well, so now suppose that you can't, suppose there is such a thing as causation, that was premise one, and there are no circles of causation. Well, here's what's going to have to happen. Well, something has a cause. The cause of that something, well, does that have a cause? Maybe, maybe not. If it doesn't, we've come to an uncaused cause, something that is a cause, but doesn't have a cause. Like if my if I have a cause, I'm one of the things that clearly has a cause, my cause, which is my parents, I guess does have a cause. And that, the, that cause, namely my parents, also has a cause, my grandparents, and so on. Um, but maybe at some point we stop. 
maybe at some point we're going to stop and hit something that doesn't itself as a cause. That's option one. We reach a first uncaused cause. That might happen. But here's another possibility, um, uh, you know, sort of logical possibility. Uh, we don't reach a first cause. We just keep on going, cause after cause, cause before cause before cause. We have an infinite regress. So we're going to talk for a bit about these two options. So the first thing I'm going to do is give a, a talk about a family of arguments that try to say that the first one is the right answer. There must be a first uncaused cause. And this is going to be a family of arguments against infinite regresses. It's going to be an ar arguments that say you cannot have cause before cause before cause forever. So sort of one kind of line of thought is, look, Big Bang, cosmology. Uh, the universe begins about 14 billion years ago. We have good empirical evidence for this from science because the universe is expanding. We can uh, run that expansion backwards, retrodict into, uh, figure out what, it ha what had to have happened. And we find that if we try to go backwards into the, and see what happened, we are going to hit some point beyond which we cannot go because everything's sort of squashed together into it. A singularity, um, the, which we call the Big Bang. So it seems like as we track back the history of the cosmos, we have to have some kind of beginning, and this, that doesn't fit well with an infinite chain of causes going back. Well, maybe. But on the other hand, um, some scientists speculate that maybe there was something before the Big Bang. Do we know that? No, we don't. But we also don't know that they're not right. They might be right. And maybe there's something before that something, and so on. There are some scientific arguments that suggest that maybe this couldn't go on forever. But this is all very controversial and super speculative. I mean, even around the time of the Big Bang, the science gets really speculative. And before it, it gets even more speculative. So I don't know that we can say with incredible amounts of scientific confidence that we cannot go on forever. So even though science kind of suggests that the universe had a beginning and that we don't have this infinite regress of causes going all the way back to sort of time minus infinity, maybe there is. Maybe this is not, this is not like super well established. So I want instead of relying on science, do some philosophy. And as far as I know, the first people to really work on this were medieval Islamic philosophers in the Kalam school. Um, and they, before Thomas Aquinas, um, and they came up with very clever arguments that it's impossible to have an infinite regress. And the basic idea behind their argument is that if we allow infinite causal chains, we get very strange paradoxes. So if we allow certain kinds of infinity in the his history of the universe, we're going to get strange paradoxes. That's the inspiration for a lot of this, uh, the research that's behind this, a lot of the thinking. But I'm not actually going to give you any of the medieval Islamic arguments, um, because I'm not actually that convinced by, the, by them. 
But I'm going to give you some other arguments just inspired by this line of thought that we get paradoxes when we think about uh, going back infinitely far. So let's start with a few. This is a warm-up. I'm not even sure this is actually a paradox, but uh, it's a famous example called Thompson's lamp. There's a lamp. It's got a little push button here. Um, each time you push it, it turns on or off. Uh, before 10 a.m., this lamp is off. The thick lines are going to indicate that it's on. Sorry, it's on before 10 o'clock. Um, then somebody at 10 o'clock presses the button and it's off until 10.30. Then somebody presses the button again. It turns back on until 10.45 when somebody presses the button. Hmm. Then it stays off until 10.52 and a half when somebody presses the button. Hmm. You can kind of see the pattern, I hope, what's going on, right? Each, the, the, there are more and more button presses get, get more and more frequent as we get closer to 11 o'clock. And basically, each time we take the remainder between 10 and 11, or between the current time and 11, cut it in half, and the button press will happen here. So first cutting in half from 10 to 11 is at 10.30. That's when the, there will be a second a button press. Then from 10.30 on, to 11, halfway in between is 10.45, that's when we have a button press. Then next is halfway between 10.45 and 11, we put a button press, 10.52 and a half. Then we put another one right here, halfway in between these, another halfway in between here. And we get like infinitely many button presses as we get closer and closer and closer to 11. And this 20th century philosopher named Thompson wonders what happens at 11 o'clock to the lamp? Is it on or is it off? It can't be both. It can't be neither. It's got to be one or the other. Which one is it going to be? Um, well, okay. You know, I don't know. When I told this to my, my son when he was a little kid, uh, he said, that depends on whether infinity is even or odd. <laughs> because, you know, after one press, it's, uh, it's off, after two presses, it's on. So after an even, odd number of presses, it's, it, it's off. And after an even number of presses, it's on. Um, yeah, but of course, the, the point of that remark, I think, was that infinity is neither even nor odd. So, so it's kind of, there's some kind of, something paradoxical going on here. Okay, I'm not sure this is paradoxical. I mean, I think it's a reasonable thing to say about this particular case is just to say, the story that I've given just doesn't get, tell us which one it's going to be. And that's it, it just doesn't tell us. It could be on, it could be off. Both of them are completely compatible with this story. Now there's a little more I want to do with this, but I don't want to focus on this, but this is kind of the simplest of the paradoxes I'm going to look at, though I think it's maybe not that paradoxical. I'll give you a second one. The Grim Reaper paradox. Hmm. We'll, we'll do the violent version, and then I'll give you a non-violent version. So the violent version is, is more fun. Here we have Grim Reapers. Um, what you don't see in this picture is, you've got, is that there are actually infinitely many Grim Reapers. Uh, imagine this. So this is like a story. Imagine this story. We've got infinitely many Grim Reapers. And each one, and this is Fred here, and... Each Grim Reaper has an alarm clock set for a specific time between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. 
And here's what happens when the alarm clock goes off. The reaper wakes up. Before it, the reaper's asleep. At the, when the alarm clock goes off, the reaper wakes up, infallibly. The reaper quickly looks at Fred and checks if he is alive. If Fred is alive, he cuts off his head. I mean, the reaper cuts off Fred's head. You see the tool he's got for that. Um, and then goes back to sleep. If Fred is already dead, which is really easy to check, because the only thing we're allowing in the story that can kill Fred are the Grim Reapers, and they kill by cutting off heads. And it's really easy to check if someone has their head cut off. You can just see that. Like there's no, you don't have to check their pulse or anything. You can see it really fast. Um, so if he's already dead, the Grim Reaper goes back to sleep. Hmm. All right. So the Grim Reaper cuts off Fred's head if Fred is alive. And if Fred's head is already off, the Grim Reaper does nothing. Now, it turns out there are infinitely many Grim Reapers. And kind of like in Thompson's lamp, but kind of not. Um, the alarm clocks are set in a, in a weird way. One Grim Reaper has... It has its alarm clock for 10.30, halfway between 10 and 11. Another one has theirs at 10.15, or its, or his, or whatever, hers, whatever green rumors are. Um, another one has theirs at uh, 10.07.5. And, sort of, and we can sort of keep on cutting this period in half, in half, in half, in half. And each, each time we cut it in half, there's a Grim Reaper there. So there's going to be like more and more Grim Reapers with alarm clocks uh, set for those times. There is no Grim Reaper at 10 o'clock that is very important, but between any two period points of time here, there are infinitely many Grim Reapers that wake up. At 10 o'clock, Fred is alive. I bet he's dead at 11. <laughs> Why? Well, look, there was a Grim Reaper who woke up at 10.30. Oh, I should add, we're supposing that in this story, there is no resurrection between 10 and 11. Once Fred is dead, he stays dead. And the only thing that can kill him is the Green Reaper. Um, so at, if he was already dead at 10.30, he was still dead at 11. If he was alive at 10.30, then some Grim Reaper when he heard the alarm clock go up, looked at uh, Fred, and, well, made sure that Fred was dead. And if Fred was alive, then, then Green River cut off uh, Fred's head. So it's guaranteed that by 11 o'clock, uh, Fred is dead. All right. So it's guaranteed that Fred is dead by 11 o'clock. But who killed him? Hmm. Presumably one of the Green Reapers, because I said nothing else in the story can kill him. Okay. Um, all right. So which one? Well, let's take a guess. Let's say it's the 1015 Reaper who killed him. Hmm. All right. If the 1015 Reaper killed Fred, that means that Fred was alive before 1015, right? Because you can't kill the dead. You can't even murder the dead either. Like, this is actually, it's like, uh, there's, you can't even be charged, I think, with killing the dead. It's not even attempted murder. It's like, a, there's a site in law something called the Doctrine of Impossible Attempts. And trying to kill the dead is one of those, and just doesn't even count, doesn't even get you attempted murder, apparently. May vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I'm not a lawyer, so if you, if you want to like try killing dead people, you may want to. 
double check with the lawyer, but I'd say you can't kill dead people. So at 10.15, if the Green Reaper kills him, at 10, if it's the 10.15 Green Reaper who kills him, Fred must have been alive before that. Okay, if he was alive before that, uh, well, he was alive, he must have been like alive all this time, because I said there's no resurrection between 10 and 11. So he must have been alive for all of this time, which means he was already alive at 10 or 7 and a half. But some Green Reaper woke up then and would have killed him. So, wait. So I said he's alive. I, I'm supposing the 1015 Reaper killed him, which means he was alive here. But if he was alive here, then this one would have killed him. Not this one. Oh, okay. Well, so it wasn't the 1015 Reaper who killed him. But the argument I just gave works for whichever Reaper killed him. Because before every Reaper, there's an earlier Reaper waking up. And so he couldn't have been killed by any Reaper. But only a Reaper could have killed him. Very, very odd. Here's the nonviolent version. I actually prefer the nonviolent version, not because it's nonviolent. The violent examples are really fun in philosophy. It just shows you something about human by group in mind that I think so. But I actually philosophically prefer this nonviolent one because I think it actually makes something a little clearer. Imagine stuff, Dream Reapers, elves. And this is like uh, just before, you know, maybe it's, this is midnight, and this is 11 p.m., or I don't know, let's, or let's just suppose, it, let's just go Christmas Eve. They're a little early. So we've got elves, and this is Fred, and Fred has put up a sock for a Christmas gift. And the elves, there are infinitely many elves assigned to Fred just to make sure he gets a gift. And each elf has a has an orange in his pocket that he is going to give to Fred, unless Fred already has a gift in the sock. Once a gift goes in the sock between 10 and 11, it doesn't come out. It stays in the sock, at least until 11. Now we imagine, so we've got, we've got infinitely many elves, and they're wake up time, they've got alarm clocks, one set it for these times, and now what, what's going on? Well, whenever the, an elf wakes up, the elf looks in Fred's sock and checks, is there an orange here? If there is, goes back, put, uh, goes back to sleep, orange in pocket, does nothing. But if there is no orange in the sock, then the elf puts the orange from his pocket into the sock. Well, since infinitely many elves have woken up, there must be a sock. Sorry, there must be, a, be an orange in the sock at the end of the story. Yeah, nice. Uh, good for Fred, he gets an orange. But wait, which orange does he get? Each elf, because before every elf, there's an earlier elf looking and making sure that Fred has a gift. Every time an elf looks in the sock, there's already an orange there. So no elf put an orange in the sock. But logic says that in the story, there must be an orange in the sock. But the only oranges, let's suppose for simplicity, that the only oranges in the universe are in the pockets of these elves. Then at the end of the story, there's an orange in the, in the sock, and yet, no elf put an orange there. In fact, every elf still has their orange in their pocket. So that's, uh, that pocket, it's a sock, 
Sorry, that sock orange, not 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 pocket. This, uh, the the orange in the sock in Fred's sock must have come out of nowhere. Very strange. This is impossible. Oranges don't come out of nowhere. That doesn't happen. Okay, so paradox, right? You were guaranteed in the in the violent version. It's guaranteed that Fred is dead. Yet no L, no. A grim reaper can kill him. In the non-violent version, it's guaranteed that there is an orange in the sock, but it must come out of nowhere. More paradoxes. Um, let's see, do I want to do this one? Yeah, I've got time. I'll, let's do Smolian's rod. Um, so here's what this is. We're imagining we're on like a planet that's perfectly flat, like people, oh, I don't know, like 3,000 years ago may have thought we lived on, I don't know. Probably not, I don't think they thought it was infinite, but this is supposed to be infinite. So we have this infinitely long surface of the planet. It's perfectly straight. It's perfect, completely hard and impenetrable. And above it, we have a rod on a fulcrum. Do we have any engineering students here? No? Okay, I guess it was, oh, we have an engineering student. Uh, does this look well balanced to you? No, it does not, right? I mean, if you had an assignment, you know, to balance a rod, you wouldn't balance it on something right by one end, right? You, you, we know what'll happen. It'll fall, right? Uh, can't balance a rod like that. Ah, you can, though. So Smolian, by the way, is the, philosopher, the logician who thought of this paradox. Um, uh, you can, if the rod is infinitely long, and it's on top of an infinitely long, flat planet. You're looking puzzled. Well, think about it. Um, the rod is like this. Suppose it starts falling. It's going to like bend like this, go like this, right? Now, the rod, I'm supposing, is like perfectly rigid. It's like great materials, perfect materials, I'm imagining for this story. So what happens when it bends? Well, it's going to keep on going straight, 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 right, along. There's a little fulcrum here. Then you go like that, like that, like that. And then it's going to hit the planet. But it's straight and doesn't bend. So it's going to keep on going through the planet. That's impossible. It can't do that. It cannot, the angle here, it, has, it cannot be any less than it is. It cannot be anywhere below horizontal because they will hit the ground. So our infinite rod has got to stay like kind of floating by one end because it cannot bend down the slightest bit. Oh, very odd. This one is my favorite. Um, I imagine I've got an infinite stack of cards, each one of a number on it. So I've got for every positive integer, one, two, three, four, and so on. I've got a card with that integer on it, okay? Now, you know, some of these integers are very long. So those cards, is going to be written in very small print. Don't worry too much about that. We can maybe encode it in particular, you know, wavelengths of color or something if we need to. We can, we can mark the cards with the numbers. So I've got this infinite stack of, stack of cards. I'm out in space, by the way, so I don't have to like, worry that the stack like, is going to go through the Earth. So what I, I'm out in space, 
and I've got this infinite stack of cards. It ends here. There's a card on top. They're all face down. So all face down. I've got a card here, another one below it, another one below it, another one below it, and so on. I'd infinite forever. Um, and they're perfectly shuffled. Now you might wonder, how can you perfectly shuffle an infinite st stack of cards with an infinite number of shuffles? Here's how I did it. Yesterday, I shuffled the top two cards. I just took them and just sort of shuffled them around and completely randomly. Two days, ago, so that was yesterday, I shuffled the two, top two cards. Or I guess, no, it's, I should not confuse you by changing the numbers. Two days ago, I shuffled the top two cards. One day ago, I guess, I shuffled the top one card that doesn't do anything. Just shuffling one card. So two days ago, I shuffled two cards. Three days ago, I shuffled the top three cards. Four days ago, I shuffled the top four cards, and so on. Uh, I'm infinitely old in this story. So, um, you look at like maybe the top 100 cards in the deck, they're perfectly shuffled, because 100 days ago, I shuffled them perfectly. The top 1,000, they're shuffled perfectly. So they're all shuffled perfectly. All, this, all the cards in this deck, in this infinite deck, are perfectly shuffled, assuming I could do all this. Infinite shuffle. Now here's the game. So, you, any of you, uh, I could pull some out of you, but let's let just so think of yourself and me playing this game. You and I take a card off the top of this stack. We're both floating in space, and we pull the top card from the stack. You pull one, I pull one, and the one who has the bigger number on the card wins 100 bucks. Sounds good. I might actually charge you to play this game. Like, I might charge you like 40 bucks to play this game, and you'd say, yeah, I'd play this game, right? Because you think, okay, 40 bucks, what's my chance of winning? Well, you know, the top two cards are shuffled, so, th so who knows which one's bigger, but it's equally likely that it's the top card or the second top card that's, that's bigger because they've been shuffled. So your chance of winning seems like it's 50%. So if you've got a 50% chance of winning $100, that's like, you know, expected payoff 50. So for $40, you'd think, yeah, it's worth this game. Okay, right, so, so it seems like a worthwhile game. Um, so maybe I'll charge you $40 to play this game. Uh, and so I'll give you $100 if your number's bigger. And maybe somebody else will give you $100 if mine's bigger. I, I, it doesn't matter so much. Um, now here's the fun thing. You, look, you pull out your card and I pull out my card and then we look at our own cards, not looking at the other person's cards, and I see the number on my card and you see the number on your card. It's probably a really big number. I don't know what it is, right? It could be any positive number, any positive integer. But I don't know, but, but it's probably something big. Let's say my number is a billion. I am now about 100% sure that your number is bigger than a billion. Why is that? Well, look. Look at all the cards that have been shuffled here. How many cards are there whose number is smaller than a billion? A billion minus one. How many cards are there whose number is bigger than a billion? Infinity, right? So if, you know, in your card, it's, it's all been shuffled, right? Um, 
I don't even have to say that it's infinitely shuffled. I'll just say the top trillion cards have been shuffled. How likely is it that you're in the top, uh, that, that it's in the top billion? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really likely that uh, the card is between a billion and a trillion rather than between zero and a billion. Because there's more between a trillion and a billion than between zero and, uh, and that. So, okay. So, and in fact, there are, but in fact, there are infinitely many cards. So you're pretty sure, nearly 100%, maybe even actually 100% sure, that if the card you see is a billion, then my card's bigger. And if the card I see is a billion, then I'm pretty sure yours is bigger. And it doesn't matter what, what card number I chose, it is. If it's, even if it's like way bigger than a billion, if it's like one followed by a billion zeros, still, I'm quite confident that the, we're each confident that the other person has the bigger card number because there are infinitely many of those and the cards have all been shuffled. Hmm. Okay, that's weird though. Like you and I are both now convinced that the other person has won the game. And now I make you a deal, an offer you can't refuse. But I don't appeal to fear like uh, the mob. I appeal to your reason. I tell you this, you are quite sure that my card is bigger than yours. Give me 95 bucks and I'll give you my card and you'll give me yours. Then you think, well, I'm quite sure your, his card is bigger than mine. The prize in this game is $100. For $95, he'll give me his card and I give him mine, I'm quite sure his is the bigger one. I am like more than 95% sure of that. I'm like nearly 100% sure of that. So yeah, I'll do that. So you give me 95 bucks. And I laugh, right? Because at this point, you've paid me maybe 40 bucks to play the game. Now you're giving me 95 bucks. I've got an 135. And even if you win, at most you're getting a hundred. And yet everything you did was entirely reasonable. It was entirely reasonable to play the game and entirely reasonable to want to swap cards. Hmm, very odd. And I can repeat, right? And each time, and you kind of can expect that in hindsight, if I keep on repeating this stuff and swapping about half the time I'll win and half the time you'll lose, but each time you're paying me $95 to swap cards because you're quite sure I've got the better card than you. This is not make much sense, right? It's, it's, this is kind of fun. It's, it's fun to see how you can cheat people without lying or being in any way dishonest. You can still get money out of them, at least if you've got an infinite supply of cards. Now, maybe that's not so crazy because if I get an infinite supply of cards, I'm pretty rich. I could like sell the cards. And even if they're not worth very much each, I get an infinite amount of money for them. But, uh, but this is my way of making money from it. Or imagine this. Um, I've got my infinite pile of cards. Oh, great. Um, I've got my infinite pile of cards here. Uh, and I pull them off one from the top. Here's what I'm convinced of. As I pull a card off the top, I'm convinced nearly 100% that the next card is going to be, have a bigger number. And then the next one, and I pull that one out to look at it and say, oh, okay, I guess the next one will have a bigger number. And I keep on thinking the next one's going to be bigger. But look, if I have a well-shuffled deck and I've pulled out 100 cards, they're not going to be in increasing order. I mean, they might be, but the chance of that is like tiny, tiny. And yet, somehow, each time I pull out a card, I'm quite confident the next one will be bigger. 
That's stupid of me. And yet, I can't deny the reasoning. Whatever number I have, there are infinitely many that are bigger and finitely many smaller. Infinity beats finite as like about 100 to zero or something. So yeah, quite sure of that. Hmm, weird. So there's something absurd about my deck, a well-shuffled deck of infinitely many cards. So we have a bunch of paradoxes. Um, I spent several years uh, of my life sort of wonder, you know, uh, I'm going to give you like later a spiel for a philosophy PhD program. Um, if you, I, I, we philosophers get to have like the great time. Like I, I spent a number, several years being paid a good salary to just think up paradoxes of infinity. Like I just collected a ton of them and then later put them in a book. Um, and so these are like the, 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 some of my favorites are, I've given you. Um, they're not all mine because some of them have other names like Smoogan and uh, Thompson. Um, and, and there's something very weird about them all and we'd like to get out of them. Here's my way to get out of the, all these paradoxes. I think what we've learned, learned from all of these paradoxes is that you cannot have infinitely many causes behind a single effect. And in all of these paradoxes, that's what we have. The final state of Fred's life in the violent version, behind that, before that, are infinitely many Dream Reapers ensuring his death. In the non-violent version, the final state of his sock, whether there is or isn't an orange in it, before that, we have infinitely many uh, elves. Uh, in Thompson's Lamp, before the final uh, segment of uh, the, the final time, which I guess was 11 o'clock, um, infinitely many button presses sort of affecting that. Um, in Simoleon's Rod, it's a little bit less clear, but I think what's going on is that the rod has infinitely many bits. And there's some kind of interaction. Each, each bit is somehow unable to penetrate the earth. So there's something about these infinitely many bits. That, like this bit here, if this rod goes on, prevents it from going this farther than this down. This bit prevents it from going farther than this. So they're all like preventing it from bending it. And so it's like an infinite chain of causes preventing it from going too far. Um, and in the, in, the, in the card case, remember how I said I shuffled the deck? How did I shuffle an infant deck? Well, yesterday I shuffled, uh, well, the top card, which didn't do anything. Two days ago I shuffled the top two cards. Three days ago I shuffled the top three card. Before the current state of the deck, behind it are infinitely many shuffles. So infinitely many causes that got the deck to its current position. So in all of these stories, there is some kind of in, infinite causal sequence behind the present state. And so I think that's the source of the paradox. And so the lesson I want to draw from all of these is you can't have infinitely many causes behind a single effect. Okay, suppose that I call this doctrine causal finitism. Can't, there, it causes only stack up finitely in back of anything. If that's right, then we also cannot have infinite backwards chains of causes. We cannot have infinite regresses. 
because that's another way of having an infinite number of causes. Well, and that was the step of the argument that I wanted, no infinite backwards chains. That's my way of arguing for that. So there must be a first cause. But there's a second line of thought that has nothing to do with these paradoxes of infinity. That's Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was not convinced by these, by, he was not convinced by these arguments against infinity because he hadn't seen these. He had seen others from the Islamic Kalam school and he wasn't impressed by those, even though he had seen them. Um, and in fact, Thomas Aquinas was so unconvinced by, the, by arguments against an infinite past that he concluded he, that we cannot dis figure it out whether the universe is infinitely old or not. Um, but we can take it on faith that it's not because the Bible says in the beginning, which suggests, which implies there was a beginning. But we can't, uh, can't know it uh, by reason that it isn't infinitely old. I think we can, and it's because of the kind of paradoxes I gave, but he disagreed. But Aquinas thought, and this is I think the important thing, that even if the universe was infinitely old, even if we had an infinite sequence of causes, it would still need a first cause. Why? Well, this is not exactly Aquinas' argument, but I think it's related to it. It tries to give an intuition. Here was a really hot philosophical problem um, in Greece around maybe the fifth uh, to the early fourth century BC. Why doesn't the earth fall down? Not everything falls down. Fire rises, smoke rises, steam rises, but heavy things Earthy things, like rocks, fall down. The earth is made up of heavy things, earthy things. So it should fall down, like all the other heavy, earthy things. So you wonder why it no, doesn't fall down. Here's a picture sort of of an ancient view of the earth, right? It's kind of a, maybe it's kind of a bowl, inverted bowl shape. Why doesn't it fall down? Well, here's one answer. Some, there's something under it to keep it up. Maybe there's some pillars that's standing on. One of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers said, it stands on tall pillars. Here I have it standing on elephants. Probably not our best theory, but it makes for a cool picture. Um, unfortunately, once we have this picture, then we have another question. Well, why doesn't the thing it's standing on, in this case a tortoise, fall down? Well, Here's the answer. It's standing on top of something else. <laughs> we can ask the question again. Why doesn't that one fall down? Well, we can keep on asking. Maybe there's an infinite chain of things holding it back up. Well, that actually doesn't help, right? I mean, really, it doesn't. Because now we wonder, because now we'd want to know, why doesn't this whole chain fall down? I mean, it's even heavier than just one thing. What's keeping it up? It could just all be falling down. So an infinite chain doesn't help either. And as far as I know, none of the ancient thinkers actually supposed an infinite chain. Um, one ancient philosopher I know said, actually just stopped at one thing and said, the earth stands on tall pillars. Now you wonder, what, are, what did the pillars stand on? He said, 
whose bottoms are shrouded in mist. <laughs> so don't look there, don't ask. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is a hard question. I think as far as I know, Aristotle finally solved it. Aristotle's solution, well, it's not actually the right solution, but Aristotle's solution was because the earth, that the earth is not actually flat, it's round, and down means different things depending on which side of the earth you are. Down means towards the center of the earth. He thought like the universe everywhere, down is towards the center of the earth. So the earth can't fall down because it's already at the bottom because down is towards the center of the earth. It's all perfectly balanced at the center of the universe where every, all the earthy stuff falls down. And he had then an argument that there couldn't be another earth because if there was another earth, it would have fallen down to the center of the universe too. Um, okay, we don't like that solution, but it's way better than an infinite number of uh, uh, pillars or tortoises or even pillars with bottoms shrouded in mist. Very clever. Um, so an infinite number of causes doesn't help to explain anything. Like, we just multiply the things that are puzzling. We were previously puzzled by the earth not falling down. Now we're puzzled about this infinite chain of tortoises not falling down. And I think this lesson applies to things other than just this old question that we're no longer worried about why the earth doesn't fall down. Um, it applies whenever we have an infinite chain of causes, there's still the puzzle of why does this whole chain exist? What, what explains that? Why doesn't, is there a chain of causes? Um, the most common response by atheist thinkers these days is that some things just happen with no explanation. Maybe the, none of the ancient Greeks were clever enough to think of this and say there's no reason why the earth doesn't fall down, it's just there. Um, but that's uh, an analogous answer. Or you could say there's no explanation why the earth and the pile of turtles doesn't fall down. Or why the infinite history is as it is, if it's infinite. Now, I happen to believe in something, a philosophical principle called the principle of sufficient reason. Um, goes back, I mean, it's, it goes back to ancient times, but it was like, I think first, like explicitly formulated made by Nicholas of Cusa in the 1400s, which says that everything that does not have to happen has a reason or explanation. If something doesn't have to happen, some things have to happen, like two plus two has to equal four. Um, but things that don't have to happen have to have an explanation. The history of the universe, even if it's infinite, is something that didn't have to happen. Likewise, this infinite chain of uh, tortoises, if we had such a thing, is something that doesn't have to happen. So it needs an explanation. So this is what I call the PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. Everything has to have a reason or explanation, if, unless it has to happen. Atheist thinkers often deny the principle of sufficient reason, but if it's false, then I think uh, various things in our thinking fall apart. Um, uh, the, one of, arguably a foundation of science is inference to best explanation, that when we have, we look for the best explanation for things. But if it's possible to have things with no explanation, then why think that the best explanation is true? Maybe. Isn't it actually simpler to suppose there is no explanation? The best explanation is usually the simpler one. Here, why not just go for no explanation at all? It's even simpler. Um, or imagine this. If, uh, so 
How do I know this didn't happen? I am a brain floating in a bubble of oxygen in space that came into existence for no reason at all half a minute ago, full of memories of having lived about five decades on Earth. But I came into existence for no cause at all out in space. Now you might say, if the principle of sufficient reason is false, this is possible. I could have just popped into existence a low bubble of oxygen. I'll soon pop out of existence if this is true, right? Because I'll run out, the oxygen will dissipate and, uh, and I'll die. But why couldn't I th that be? Um, you might say this is really unlikely that a brain would, uh, would pop into existence like for no reason at all. I don't know that we, that actually makes any sense. I don't know that it makes sense to talk of the probability of something happening for no reason at all, that you can say some of those things are more likely and some of those things are less likely. Um, in fact, also there's like, you can argue, I think that, that such a brain popping into existence is actually a bit more likely than the Big Bang because the Big Bang is a much more massive and vast event, <laughs> a lot more energy than just one brain. Um, so I think if we don't believe in the principle of sufficient reason, we get some kind of skepticism. We start thinking, I don't know if I actually have any past. Maybe I just popped into existence moments ago. Maybe we all did. So I think we should believe the principle of sufficient reason, to be rational, to be able to reason about the world. So even if there is an infinite chain of causes, there has to be an explanation of that chain. There has to be something beyond that chain. And so either way, we get to a first cause. Uh, any mathematicians in the room, there's a little bit of a trickiness going from the fact that any chain has a, has a cause before it to saying that there's an uncaused cause. You end up using Zorn's lemma to prove that, um, but it can be done. So here's the, the line of thought. Kalam uh, line of thought, there cannot be an infinite chain of causes, so we have to have a first cause. Aquinas line of thought, he didn't, have quite, he didn't quite do it in terms of the principle of sufficient reason, but what he did was probably not that different. Um, Aquinas says, but even if you have an infinite chain of causes, it still needs a cause. So either way, there has to be a first cause, something that is itself uncaused. Well, what is it? This is where things get, I think, particularly difficult, and I don't have that much to say about this. Um, I think the first cause has to be something where it doesn't make sense to ask why does it exist? Because otherwise it's just as puzzling as any of the stuff we were trying to explain. And so for it to be something that, where it doesn't make sense to ask why does it exist, it has to be something that has to exist. Something like truth. Truth is like that as an abstraction, it has to exist because if it, if it didn't, it would be true that it doesn't exist. Um, so it's something that has to exist. It's in what we call a necessary being. I think nothing that is in the realm of science is something that has to exist. Science talks of things that don't have to exist, that are contingent, that come into existence, come out of existence. Science doesn't talk about necessary things. Um, so it, whatever the first cause is, it, it's, it's, a, it's something that has to exist. Um, it's beyond the scope of science. So it's supernatural, because the scope of science is everything that's natural. I think we should prefer simpler theories. That's one of the sort of lessons of science. 
And the simplest theory is that there's only one first cause. We have an argument there's at least one. Are there more than one? The argument doesn't say, as far as it goes, but that there's only one is the simpler hypothesis. The universe has a lot of unity to it. It doesn't look like it's made by a committee, which suggests a single creator. A creator of the universe is very powerful. So whatever it is, it's a powerful being. The universe is very beautiful and has life in it. And that kind of points to that the first necessary cause points to its being intelligent and good. So all of this points to a very powerful, highly intelligent, supernatural creator. And then we can ask, how powerful? How intelligent? Well, in a way, the simplest theory is infinitely so. Because any other number, any other sort of degree of uh, power or intelligence would be kind of arbitrary and, and we'd have to explain why that one, not something else. But infinity seems to make sort of more sense. So the simplest theory maybe is that this being is infinite and perfect and it's God. And then we could, this theory that there is a being that's infinite and perfect God, it could be used to explain other things that are puzzling. Consciousness, morality, the meaning of life, things like that. Okay. So this is sort of my way of kind of expanding on perhaps differently from how he intended Paul's line from Romans, that ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Thank you. Yeah. So there's a God uh, by the Supreme. How do we know it's a Christian God? Why not the Buddhist or any other variation? All I've argued is that there's like a, an infinitely... I mean, the most that I've argued, and a number of these things on the last slide, you know, or second last slide, are very hand-wavy. All of this is just, there is an infinite and perfect being. So that's quite compatible with multiple stories as to what this kind of being is. Yeah, so as far as this goes, it doesn't do that. I, I mean, so here's what Aquinas thinks about these things. He thinks there are some things you can get by reason. And he thinks the existence of God is one of those things and that, he's, that God is all-powerful, that he doesn't have parts, um, that he's all good. You can get that. But then there's other things about God that you cannot, that are go beyond reason. And you have to either say, I don't know, or have some other source of information, like maybe God told you. So Aquinas thinks like, for example, whether is God a trinity? Is, is one of those things. It's like, you can't figure that out just by sitting and thinking. You, that's just beyond reason. And so either you have to say, you, we don't know, or you have to hope that God told us. And Aquinas thinks God did, in fact, tell us in Christian revelation. Um, but that's a different story, and, and requires uh, some you know, reason to think that the alleged Christian revelation is in fact come from God and things like that. I think that is, but uh, that's a complete, that's a different and that's going beyond, I think, philosophy. So I think, uh, that, yeah, I think there, there's, there's what we can do by reason and then beyond that, there's room for faith. Yeah. I think it's a trick, but you said the, the most common response is um, as you were given hope. 
Among philosophical, I should have said by philosophical atheists. I wouldn't even have thought that it would be like. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this is actually why I, my first book was a defense of the principle of sufficient reason, precisely because almost every non theist philosopher these days in the English speaking world denies it. So, yes, that, that, that's just, uh, there is a few who don't, uh, but uh, Della Rocca at Yale, um, I think he may be the only one I can actually name. I mean, there's probably some others, but. Yeah, I don't know, I, do, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is that, um, and there's a question of why, and I think there's two reasons why. One, there's kind of one that I, you know, I don't uh, uh, think is intellectually great, which is that I think at some point in the philosophy of religion, maybe in the 1980s, it became clear to a number of people that the principle of sufficient reason is like the crucial step in a number of cosmological arguments so that once you grant it, then we get at least a first cause. So that became clear like in this, and, and accepted by, by actually some atheists. So like the, one of the first people writing on this uh, was uh, Rowe, who is uh, an atheist, and he was pointing this out. And so I think if this led a number of philosophical atheists say, okay, so the principle of sufficient reason is false because it leads to this false conclusion that there's a first cause. Now that's maybe not the best uh, proceeding intellectually. The other one is like this, it's this puzzle. Uh, it's, there is a, an actual philosophical argument against it, which is if everything has an explanation, take the sum total of all of contingent reality, namely all of the re reality that doesn't have to happen. So everything, you know, the fact that Napoleon uh, lost uh, uh, at Waterloo, the fact that uh, the universe is 14 billion years old, the fact that there are, uh, that, uh, that uh, Earth has a moon, all these things, take all of those together, put them all together, all the things that don't have to happen, and ask, by the PSR, it's got to have an explanation. What is that explanation? And... There turns out to be an argument that, well, that explanation can't be another contingent thing, something that doesn't have to happen, because that would be circular, because this thing we're explaining already includes all of them. So it has to be something that is necessary, something that has to happen. And then there was like a line of argument uh, that a necessary being cannot explain a a necessary fact cannot explain a contingent fact. And... Maybe afterwards, we, if, you, if you want, we can, we can talk about why people think that. I think that that's just mistaken. But. So there is actually a philosophical argument, but I think it's a mistaken one. Yeah? Well, uh, kind of along the same lines, one thing that I've heard a lot of atheists assert when they're talking about infinities is that just we should expect all these paradoxes when we're talking about mm. infinities because that's just the way infinities are. And like we're trying to put our 
you know, Yeah, so I I struggle with with this a fair amount because I think we want to distinguish between what is paradoxical and what is merely strange. The world is full of merely strange things. Um, this is like one of those you know, things. So what, Dr. Proust, have you learned after you know, decades of doing philosophy? What's the big thing you've learned? Well, probably the big one, I think the big one I've learned is just the world is strange, <laughs> really. I mean, like, this is like everywhere I turn in philosophy, you get these things where this is strange. How could this be? This is a strange theory. Let's deny it. Oh. That leads to other strange things. It's like we, we're stuck with strange things. So, you know, it, but, some, but strange things are real. The platypus is strange too, and it's real. Um, so what about infinity? So I want to do, argue from things that aren't just strange, but are actually like really impossible. And so what I want to do is have the stories be ones where we either end up with a contradiction, as in the case of um, the Grim Reapers and the Elves, where we have the contradiction that Fred is dead or he's got an orange in his pocket. The only possible source of death or the orange is one of these, but none of these is a source of it. That's just a contra logical contradiction. Um, or else the story, like violate some principles of rationality. So like, I think maybe the one with the deck of cards, that seems to violate some principles of rationality as to, you know, make the kinds of things that seem ra that are rational to think, but yet lead to losses. So, so that's my move, is I, is, I, is, I, is I try to be a bit careful as to what is the paradox and it's just not, and just mere strangeness is not enough. And that's, I think, part of why I don't want to say that Thompson's Lamp, the first one, is actually a strong argument because there I think it's just a bit strange. It's strange if the light's on, it's strange if it's off, but it doesn't violate any principles that I can see or not in any obvious way. I and someone else have tried to come up with some principles that get violated by it, but it's, it's not clear. How about the uh, Hilbert's Hotel paradox? Do you like that one? No, I don't. Not at all. I think, that, I think that's just strange. Yeah. I think it's actually paradoxical. No, I, don't, I think that's just how it is. You've got a hotel. It's got a sign on it that says, uh, always full, always room for more, because it's got infinitely many rooms. And, you have a new, every room has a person, you have a new person come in and you tell them to go to room one and tell the people to shift down. So the person from room one goes to room two, the person from room two goes to room three, so on. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's how it is. It's a little bit strange, but it doesn't seem like any principle. You might think there's some principle of like the whole is greater than the parts that's violated, but I think the lesson, one of the sort of ways of actually trying to define infinity is as something that violates that that thing. I think that that one with the paradox that I've heard that, it's viol that it violates is like, if you have 
all of the guests above room 10 check out, and then all of the odd-numbered guests check out, you would end up with the same amount of guests checking out, even though... Yeah, but I mean, look, they're different. But so that's how it is. That's just the same numbers, right? I mean, you can have a bunch of uh, pieces of paper on one side green, on the other side red. On the green side, you've got the, the, the numbered 10, 11, 12, 13, and so on. On the other side, you've got the odd numbered ones. You can tell which card, you know, what's on one is on one side 10, on the other side is one, on the next one is 11 and three. And you can tell what each card is, and you know, that's how it is. I mean, there's like, that one is even like, it's not even, a, it's, it's a bit strange, but the strangeness actually has nothing to do with even it's, the fact that this is like real. Even if you just imagine it, it's already strange. And we can't imagine it. So by the way, I should say something. I, what I say, I don't think that you can have an infinite sequence of causes going infinitely far back, but I'm perfectly okay with there being actually an infinite number of things. I think there's nothing paradoxical about that. And I think that's important for mathematics because if we said that uh, there cannot be an infinite number of things, then we would have to say that mathematics, modern mathematics, which is all about, well, not all, but, but largely about infinite numbers of things, is talking about something that's impossible. And that would be very strange, another strange thing, maybe paradoxical, that a theory, namely modern mathematics, of something that's allegedly impossible is so very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's easier if it's a single universe. I was talking to a couple of you guys earlier today. Um, and it's because there seem to be so many parameters in the universe that are that seem arbitrary. So, you know, why is uh, the gravitational constant what it is? Why, uh, why is the background uh, microwave radiation level what it is? All of these things seem, they're, they're not, all of these things about the universe, they don't seem like, they don't fit with my picture of what we would have if something was necessary. Like if I find, you know, somewhere, you know, on a, uh, you know, 17 pencils on a desk and five erasers and, you know, it's a classroom maybe, um, and two calculators, those numbers, that just seems kind of weird to think this is, it had to be those numbers. Now, if I found one calculator, one eraser, one pencil, it's a little bit more plausible to say, oh yeah, it has to be that. So, and if like in the laws of nature, we had like very numbers like one, two, three, pi, e, things like that, then I could maybe buy, okay, it has to be that. But that's not where modern physics is pointing. Modern physics seems to be pointing towards the numbers and the laws of physics being more arbitrary. So in a single universe, at least, it doesn't sound, that doesn't sound, fit well, I think. Um, now, what about a different theory, a multiverse theory on which every possible combination exists? Then it's sounding a little more plausible to say that's necessary. So you could say we've got a multiverse where every possible scenario is necessary. 
Um, and that has a kind of non-arbitrariness to it. It doesn't sound ad hoc. It sounds more like something that could be necessary, that every possible scenario is there. But it's wacko. <laughs> and, and, and I don't, okay, that, but I, I, again, as I said, I, we don't want to dismiss things just because they're strange. But if that is true, if every possible scenario is realized, that seems like the most plausible necessary multiverse is every possible scenario is realized. Then I think all reason, all our reasoning about the future breaks down. Why? Because, so, you know, um, when I have a headache, I take a Motrin. But suppose the world includes the universe, the multiverse includes infinitely many universes. Then it'll include infinitely many universes whose past is just like our past, but where a Motrin causes my head to fall off. <laughs> and infinitely many universes whose past is just like the past of this world, where a Motrin just cures a headache and not by making the head fall off. When I take a Motrin, I am assuming that it's not going to make my head fall off. If I thought it was just as likely that it would make my head fall off, I wouldn't take a Motrin. And the same is true for any decision I make that relies on the future. If, in fact, we live in, a, in the maximally rich multiverse that has all the possibilities realized, this will include all those possibilities where all sorts of wacky things happen in the future. And there's no reason we have for saying we're not living in one of those universes. And so I think that leads to total skepticism about the future. And like a skepticism that's like really has a bite. It means like, at this point, you don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do at all. Will me stopping answering this question result in me falling down dead or floating into the air or turning into a butterfly? I have no idea. So maybe I should keep on talking because it's too dangerous to stop. I stop. Yeah, yeah Jack. So it seems like the, um, the denial of PSR, it seems pretty clear that the denial of PSR leads to some sort of skepticism. But then the seemingly obvious response would be to say, well, you know, whatever skepticism that entails, it would be unlikely. But then you'd respond by saying, well, the laws of probability without PSR just kind of go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, could you kind of develop that line of thinking and explain a little more why exactly? Yeah. Okay, so I, I think when we, there are times when it makes sense to talk about probabilities in nature. So quantum mechanics is all about that. So in quantum mechanics, we have like predictions that are probabilistic that say, okay, you've got an electron. Oh, great. Uh, that doesn't matter at this point. Um, so uh, you, you've got like uh, an electron with a mixed spin up and down. It goes into a magnetic field. Half the time it goes up, half the time it goes down. There is actually a law of nature that specifies these probabilities given its state. The laws of quantum mechanics and specifically the Born rule specifies that if an electron in this state goes through, uh, then it's in a certain state goes through, then these are the probabilities. 
So I think there's like a tie between these kinds of probabilities in the world and laws of nature. They come from laws of nature. But where we have laws of nature applying to something, we have explanations. The laws of nature explain things. We have an explanation why the electron went up, because it had a 50% chance of going up. Um, maybe not the best explanation, it's a chancy explanation. We prefer explanations that, that come with higher probabilities or maybe even 100%, but it's still an explanation. So I think uh, randomness, like, sorry, not randomness, uh, no explanation also implies no probabilities. I mean, so what's, suppose you have a coin that comes up into existence, a normal coin that comes into existence for no reason at all. It's tempting to say it's equally likely to be heads as tails. But why? I mean, there's just no explanation at all. Could be either, could be neither. Well, it could, no, it could, could be either, but why say it's equally likely? Normally, we can say it's equally likely because of the laws of nature and how coins to coin tosses behave. But it was just for no reason at all. That. So that's, that's sort of my official answer. That's my, one of my answers. If you insist, if someone insists and says, you can still give explanations, and so a coin flip, a, a coin coming into existence out of nothing, that would have a probability of one half of being heads and one half of being tails. If you say that, and you say there are these kinds of probabilities, then I'm going to push in a second direction, which is to say that on re if you once you've admitted that there are ways of having probabilities without explanation, then I'm going to argue that the Big Bang is less likely than the universe having come into it, than what I call the local five-minute hypothesis, which is that a, sm some, uh, a small ball, five light minutes in the radius around the Earth came into existence five minutes ago, and that's all. That, I think, is more likely than the Big Bang. Why? Well, it's, it involves a lot fewer, a lot less stuff than the Big Bang does, because the Big Bang's got all the energy in the universe. And not just randomly, but arranged in a, in a low entropy way. People estimate, like, well, if you were going to assign probabilities to the Big Bang, how likely is it that it would have the kind of order it does? And people give numbers to that. And it's like 10 to the minus 10 to the 123. Incredibly tiny numbers. And you can actually estimate what is the probability if you've had bunches of random particles that they would make an Earth and whatever else is within five light minutes of Earth five minutes ago. And that's actually a much, it's a tiny probability, but it's actually much larger than the one you got at the Big Bang. So I think, uh, so basically, I think you cannot assign the probabilities, but if you could, the, pro, those pro, you, the probabilities you would assign would also lead to, to skepticism because it would lead us to thinking probably the, uh, probably we're five minutes old. Actually, even more likely one minute old. And probably we're just going to pop out of existence soon <laughs> as all of this stuff dissipates. But. Yeah. 
Yeah, you had your hand up. Oh, okay. Where is the hand? Oh. Yes. A yellow. I don't know. No? I was just scratching my head. I was just going to yeah. just kind of on what you were just saying. If you start assigning probabilities to things, would you say you run into things like for Boltzmann brains and stuff like that? Yeah, Boltzmann brains, local five-minute hypotheses, these kinds of things. So Boltzmann brains, that's the hypothesis that uh, we are, that, that some brains just pop into existence uh, in, in, in space just out of random quantum fluctuations out of, uh, molecule, of molecules there and little bubbles of oxygen and think for a little bit and then pop out of existence. On some multiverse theories, um, on some multiverse theories with a finite number of universes, uh, the universes with Boltzmann brains outnumber the ones with normally evolved brains. That's kind of a problem for those multiverse theories. On some multiverse theories, they're out, the, the numbers go the other way. So some physicists take these Boltzmann brains quite seriously as a, as a hypothesis to test various uh, uh, multiverse hypotheses against because we are not Boltzmann brains we think. <laughs> uh, and so hypotheses that predict that Boltzmann brains vastly outnumber evolved brains, we can refute by pointing to ourselves. Yeah. So well, this is somewhat related to causal connections um, and specifically has, as it has to do with free will. So if, we, if, if the universe some causal chain without um, like what you're talking about, without having some sort of pure natural probability, how would that allow for free will within a ordered universe? Well, there are two, view, two philosophical views of free will. On one view called compatibilism, Free will is compatible with determinism. So it's possible to have something be entirely determined by its causes, inevitable in every way, and yet free. Why? Because on this view, freedom is something like the actions flowing from your character and reflecting who you are and who you, your conception of yourself, your, your desires, and all that. That's what freedom is. It's not about having alter, alternate options. It's about the action being truly a reflection of you uh, uh, with some extra conditions about you being sane and all that. So on that view, there's no difficulty at all. That's not the view I take. The other view is called incompatibilism, and on this view, free will requires you know, the possibility of going one way or the possibility, a real possibility of going one way or the other way. I think it's quite compatible with a chain of causes. I mean, as long as it's not a chain of causes that determines that it's going to go one way or another. I mean, you, you ask me to do something, and I do it. There's a chain of causes. Your request, or your opening your mouth, vocalizing, uh, stuff happening in the air, vibrations in the air, vibrations in my ears, then somehow it gets to my mind. Um, and then I, I do the thing you asked me to do. That's a chain of causes. But I think it's, it's quite possible that I also could refuse. It's not, it's not a chain of causes that I think determines it. Somewhere in this chain of causes, it's, it becomes, it's non-evitable. Where? That's a hard question. This depends on, you know, what is the nature of the mind? 
Is it the brain? Is it the soul? Is it a soul and a brain? Um, but I think on any of these, an these three answers, brain, soul, soul, and brain, you can tell us some kind of story on the, on the brain side. We just say, well, maybe there's some indeterministic events in the brain. Maybe some neuron firing potentials are not determined by the physics, but there are sort of quantum things that are not determined. Um, on the soul views, maybe the soul controls some things. But there's still some kind of causal chain in that it's, I'm obviously my, what I do is affected by my being asked to do it. And my being, and there are probabilities. If I'm asked to do something that generally speaking, unless it's one of my kids being really, really annoying, increases the probability of my doing. I have a question about the term uh, paradox. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's a disanalogy between that scenario and the kind of infinite chain that is being posited by uh, an atheist in terms of the material world. Because um, I'm thinking that each event for the atheist would have one particular preceding cause that's generating it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like potentially there's a problem of tra traversing an infinite many causes in the past to get to this moment now. Mm -hmm. But it seems like in the Grim Reaper situation, it's like always another possible or there's always another Grim Reaper that is takes precedence over one particular Grim Reaper yeah. causing the death. Um, so I'm wondering like if there's not a difference there. There is. Yeah. There is. Um, I think in the Grim Reaper case, it's more like a sequence of insurings. So each one ensures that Fred is dead or has an orange. What, how do we ensure things? We can ensure things in two ways. One, by checking that it's already happened. And two, by doing it, right? So if like, you know, my wife asked me, you make sure that... Uh, my daughter is in bed. I can do it in two, I can, I would check if she is, and if she isn't, put her to bed. And it could happen in two ways, right? It could turn out that she's already in bed, in which case I don't have to do anything more. Or it could turn out I have to put her to bed. So insuring is something, is something more. So I think what it is, it's a kind of chain of insuring. And so, yeah, that is a little bit different. So it is, I think, possible, if, if that was the only paradox we had, we could say, okay, maybe what we don't want is infinite sequence of insurings, but we can't have other kinds of causal chains. And so that's why I, I, you know, I collected a bunch of paradoxes. This is the one that got me started about this whole thing. Um, this is the one that like made me think there, there may be something to the Kalam kinds of arguments. Um, but uh, afterwards I gathered a bunch more. And for this kind of reason, actually, this is one that impresses me a bit less than some of the others. All right, well, if there are no more questions. Um, if anybody wants the full collection, it's in my, in my book, Infinity, Causation, and Paradox, which has a lot of paradoxes.